appreciate your attendance here tonight and those of you who have been at the VBS throughout the week. It says a lot about you and uh, your desire to grow and your desire to have your young people at, a, at a, an event like this. I must say I was rather entertained during our boat crash that we had a little bit ago. I'm afraid that Will Tucker and Giff may have sabotaged it earlier. What a shame that would have been if that was the case. Last night we talked about um, the moral argument for God's existence, which I believe at the very most absolutely proves that there is a God. And if one disagrees with that conclusion based upon the information, the evidence that was given, at, at the very least... It, uh, or at the very most, I guess I should say, um, it would show the hideousness of atheistic evolution. After a class was over last night, I talked to Brother Edwards for a few minutes about a variety of things, and one of the things I brought up to him was something I, I meant to bring up in my lesson last night, an example in uh, rather modern times, and by that I mean the last couple of centuries, of where atheism was actually taken to some extent to its logical conclusion in a very small way, if you will, in a small town in southwest Missouri. I wrote an article about this a few years ago, about a town that's located not far from where my dad was born and grew up in uh, southwest Missouri, a town called Liberal Missouri. It was founded by a man named George H. Walser, who uh, named it after the Liberal League of, uh, that was in Lamar, Missouri, that he was a member of. And so he founded this town, and what was unique about this town is that it was founded, and it was supposedly the only town of its size in America that was to be uh, based upon, um, as the advertisement went out around the United States, from what I understand, as the only town of its size without a preacher, church, saloon, God, Jesus, hell, or devil. It was an experiment, if you will, and this was back in 1880. So, yes, it sounds like a long time ago, but when you think of world history, it was not really all that many years ago. You can imagine what kind of town that would have been like to, to live in. There were, Christians were not uh, uh, wanted there. They were not to be tolerated there. There was to be no talk of the Bible or Christianity or the teachings of Jesus Christ. And five years after this town was founded, a, uh, from what I understand, a brother in Christ by the name of Clark Braden went and visited the town. He wanted to see you know, what it was like just five years after its founding. And so he wrote an article about it, or he, I guess you could say, co-wrote an article. He wrote it in, in conjunction with a writer for the St. Louis Post-Dispatch, which is a paper that's still around today. And I got a hold of the article that he wrote, or that he co-wrote, if you will, back in 1885. And in that article, he said things like this. The boast about the sobriety of the town is false. You can imagine a town that claims that it is founded without having or wanting to have a saloon would have a saloon or would have a lot of alcohol in the town before long when there is no God allowed there or no Bible or no church or preaching of the gospel. He said there are more drunken infidels that can be seen in a year in liberal than drunken Christians among 100 times as many church members during the same time. Lack of reverence for parents and obedience to them is not the exception, but is the rule. And you can imagine a town where there is no instruction uh, from God or His Word, and the ideas are atheism, or at the very least agnosticism, and skepticism that young people wouldn't really have any kind of reason, solid, uh, fundamental, logical reason to uh, have respect for their parents. 
He went on to say there are more grass widows, grass widowers, or people who have been divorced and abandoned by their spouses, and people living together who have former companions living in any town ten times its population. A good portion of the few books that are read are of the class that decency keeps under lock and key. There are no lack of loose women there in this town. Uh, there hasn't been an average birth of one, uh, one birth a year of infidel parents because abortion is, or feticide as they called it, is universal. The physicians of the place say that a large portion of their practice has been trying to save females from the consequences of feticide or killing their infants, uh, either before they are born or soon after. In no town is slander more prevalent or the charges more vile. If one were to accept what the inhabitants say of each other, he would conclude that there is a hell including all liberal and that its inhabitants, as he described them, are the devils. He went on to say that such are the facts concerning this, what he called an infidel paradise, also an experiment. Everyone who has visited liberal, who knows the facts, knows that such is the case. Now, there might be people who would say, well, Eric, how do you really know those were the facts? Well, one thing that history has shown us is that Clark Braden was arrested for criminal libel on May the 17th, and on May the 18th went to trial, and he didn't even give a response to the accusations against him, and the jury came back with a no-cause-for-action verdict it would certainly seem because what he wrote was actually the truth. Not long after that, he was uh, a civil suit was filed against him by the hotel owner in the town of Liberal for $25,000. And that was in, again, 1885, which in 1885, $25,000 was a lot more than what $25,000 is today. This went on through the court system for several months, and then in September of the following year, from what history tells us, the plaintiff dismissed the case at his own cost. Thus, it would appear that Clark Braden was exonerated of the things that he wrote. He went on to say later, that is Clark Braden, that 90% of those in town would leave if they could simply sell their property. I didn't get to this last night, but I thought I would share that with you. I did uh, print off a few of the articles if you are interested in that because it's just really an example or a case study of where some of the few times you'll read uh, that history has recorded for us where people have taken the ideas of atheistic evolution, not just uh, pondered on them theoretically, but taken them to some extent experimentally to their logical conclusion. And what we know, and what Brother Edwards was uh, uh, pointing out to me last night and saying in a a great way, showing the hideousness of it, is that atheists simply, when, when they don't want to see their ideas taken to their logical conclusions and live in that world. And he is so right in that. For example, last night you recall that we quoted from uh, the Texas 2000, I think, six distinguished scientists of the year in the state of Texas who said, you know, we need to get rid of 90% of the human population. We're, we're just over, we've overpopulated earth. Well, number one, who says we need to do that? Who is he to say that that is an obligation that we have, number one? Number two, if he were to follow through with that statement, what should he do? What should he volunteer to do? He should volunteer to be the first one. That's right, Brother McKee, the first one to do that. But again, rarely do you see those take their ideas to their logical conclusions. Now, please do not mistake what I said last night 
for saying that all atheists are absolutely horrible people that you could never befriend and never uh, have a conversation with. That's certainly not what I'm saying. What we're talking about is the philosophy of atheism. And when you take that to its logical conclusion, you have a world that no one wants to live in. So I know that is not the subject of tonight's class for the uh, 35, 40 minutes or so that we have in here. And you know, the bad thing about it is, I know you have a clock in the back, but I can't really tell what time it is right now. So it doesn't really do me a lot of good. And I left my phone over here by this young guy. And uh, you know, if you want to tell me what time it is later, you're welcome to do so. Um, But no texting, no texting on my phone during class tonight, okay? All right. Well, let me uh, move on to a topic that uh, I'd like to discuss tonight. And uh, that is having to do with the Bible itself. Why do people reject the Bible? This is just kind of an introduction to the class. There are a lot of reasons why people reject the Bible. A lot of people, I believe, reject the Bible simply because or partly because they've never read it. You know, the Bible is the best-selling book in the world and has been for centuries. Uh, Since the printing press uh, was invented, the Bible has been the best-selling book Continually, From what I understand, it's never put on the New York Times bestseller list because it's just always been understood that it is the best-selling book. That being the case, it is very sad that many people, even many Christians, um, do not read the Bible, at least very much. And many non-Christians have never read the Bible, and they claim not to believe the Bible. And so I believe one of the reasons they would take that position, at least partly, is because they have never read it. And if, even if they have read it, a lot of people have never really considered the proofs for the Bible's inspiration or the legitimate, logical reasons why people should come to believe that the Bible is the inspired Word of God. But if no one's ever looked at the evidences for it, uh, the amazing uh, prophetical information that's in there, the amazing prophecies that were told by uh, men who had to have been inspired to know the kinds of things that they knew hundreds and hundreds of years in advance. Even in the case of our Lord and Savior, the Messianic prophecies literally thousands of years occasionally in advance. Uh, or in the case of Isaiah, in the several prophecies, he's known as the Messianic prophet that he gave some 700 years before Christ. Well, there are many reasons that a person should believe in the inspiration of the Bible. And when you look at all of the evidences for it, I believe that, that a person who has an honest and good heart will accept the, the truth that the Bible is God's communication to man, His inspired Word. Some people reject it because they're taught by their parents to reject it from a young age. And so they continue to reject it as they get older. It may be that they have not only been taught by their parents, it may be that they've been taught by teachers or professors in middle school, grade school, high school, or especially as we see around this country and around the world in universities where young people are laughed at for believing that there is a God and believing that the Bible is the Word of God. These are truths that we must come to know and come to believe, and they are truths that our young people need to come to know because they understand it is in fact the truth and not believe this just because their parents or relatives believe it. Just as people who do not believe the Bible is the Word of God, based at least partly on the fact that they were reared that way to not believe it, just as that is illogical, it is illogical for a person truly even raised in a Christian home when they become of age, when they reach that age of accountability and they are growing and they are uh, producing their own faith or they are having their own faith, well, that faith needs to be based on what's right, what's true, 
what's reasonable and the fact that God is and the Bible is His Word and not simply, even though one of the most marvelous truths that a parent or a family member or a friend can teach another is that the Bible is the Word of God, we need to see those evidences for ourselves. Many people are repelled by the hypocritical conduct of Christians. Isn't that the case? Have you heard this before? That there are people who simply reject the idea of God, the Bible, and Christianity in general because because they see how so many professed Christians act. And they do not want any part of that. Now, I'm not saying they're right in that. They certainly are not right. Just as people who were living in the first century had no right not become, to not become followers of Jesus simply because one of the twelve was a hypocrite, because one of the twelve was a thief, because he was a traitor. That didn't mean it was right for people 2,000 years ago to reject Jesus as who He said He was. God in the flesh, the Son of God. There has always been, virtually always, been hypocrites on earth, and there most likely will be until this earth ends, until Jesus returns. But these are some of the reasons why people reject the Bible. Some are repelled by the religious division in the world today. And indeed, it is very sad to see all the division that there is. But God is not to be blamed for that. And His Word is not to be blamed for that. And so even though it is sad to see the religious division that we have in the world today, it is not a legitimate reason to reject the Bible from being the inspired Word of God. Some simply want to live according to their own rules. It may be that one of my colleagues addressed this earlier in the week. I think Jeff may have touched on this in one of his lessons. You can imagine... Some people really don't want to know what the Bible says because they have heard that the Bible restricts them in various ways, that God wants to control their lives. And indeed, God created us and has every right to tell us what to do and what not to do. But what we as Christians who have come to know God and love that God know that He has given us His Word for our own benefit. Just as Jesus came into this world not to condemn the world, but that through Him the world might be saved, we come to know Jesus. We come to believe His Word based upon the evidence that is logical, that is right. We come to Jesus and we come to enjoy and love serving Him because we know He has our best interest at heart. But these are some reasons why people reject the Bible and what I want to expound upon for a few minutes this evening is that some believe the Bible contains various errors and thus it is unworthy of belief and specifically various scientific errors. I'm not going to have the time tonight to go into a, a number of these alleged errors, but I want to address a few of them. You know, if the Bible is the Word of God, if this is an inspired book that holy men of God spoke as they were or wrote as they were moved by the Holy Spirit, 2 Peter 1, 20, 21, then we would expect, I believe logically so, that the inspired penmen would not have made mistakes in what they wrote if they were truly inspired by God. Number one, God does not make mistakes. God is perfect. And if this book is from God, it is to be perfect, at least in its original Form. We wouldn't say that a copy of it that came off the Thomas Nelson printing press that may have an, uh, an O instead of a D at the end of the word and, which one of my copies has, at least it appears to have, because the stem of the D is not there. And so the word looks like anno instead of 
And, well, that's not God's fault. That is not uh, some type of legitimate criticism against the inspiration of the Bible. But what we mean is, the men that God inspired to write this book, did they write inerrantly, free from errors, or did they write errantly? Did it have errors in it? And I, I don't understand how people could say, and some Christians take the position that the Bible could be full of errors and it still be God's book. How could we prove that this book is from God if it had, if the Bible writers made all sorts of errors as they wrote it? You know, if I stood up here tonight and I said that I am inspired by God, that God is speaking through me at this very moment. If I said that, that's a false claim, and I'm just using this as an example, but if I said that, and then I began to make various mistakes as I was speaking and alleging that God was speaking through me, what would you know about, what would you know very quickly about my words? Well, that they are not from God, because God is not going to, God as a perfect God, is not going to speak error through me, regardless of what, Uh, area that you were talking about, whether you're talking about something that's historical or geographical or whether you're talking about something mathematical or certainly something that deals with the most important things that we could ever contemplate the truth. Now, let me mention this when it comes to the alleged scientific errors in Scripture. And there are a lot of uh, alleged errors that people have made about, uh, about Scripture whether it be historical, whether it be just two different passages that allegedly contradict each other. I suppose one of the most well-known supposed mistakes in Scripture is where Judas is said to have gone out and hanged himself in Matthew chapter 27. And then in Acts chapter 1, it says he fell headlong, burst open in the middle, and all his guts came out. Not a really pleasant sight, but some say that that is a, somehow a, a contradiction. Well, it's no contradiction at all. You simply have two different writers talking about somewhat of the same event, but at two different times. Matthew saying that he went out and hanged himself. And Luke obviously talking about in, in Acts chapter 1 that at some point later, whatever he was hanging upon apparently broke or he was cut down, his body fell. And what we know that when mammals die, they, they swell. And his body apparently had swelled, and when he hit the ground, his body burst open, his stomach burst open, and the guts came out. I saw a story several years ago of a uh, large mammal that had beached itself on uh, an island out in the Far East somewhere. It was a whale, and it began to expand. Some uh, science researchers had the bright idea of getting a truck and putting that whale on the truck and carrying it down to... Than one of the nearby universities to do some experiments on it, and before it got to the university, it blew up in the middle of a busy town. There were actually tourists around there or people around there who had whale guts on them as the story was reported and pictured. Sorry to put, paint that picture in your mind, but uh, there are a lot of different errors that are alleged about Scripture. Don't worry, there may be more disgusting things that we look at tonight as we strive to make some points that I think are very uh, applicable to this discussion. But Eric, some, some say uh, the Bible is not a science book, and they are exactly right. It is not a book of biology, geology, astronomy, or some other field of science. The Bible is about God. The Bible is about Jesus Christ and salvation through Him. There's no doubt that is the theme of Scripture. After you read the creation account in Genesis chapter 1 in a more specific uh, a more specific amount of information, or information in chapter 2 that is more specifically dealing with, especially day 6, once you, get to day, once you get to Genesis chapter 3, you have 
the scheme of redemption being revealed, Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, throughout the Old Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Acts through Revelation. Jesus is coming, the theme of the Old Testament. Jesus is here or was here, the theme of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And Jesus is going to return, Acts through Revelation, with a number of letters that are penned uh, through inspiration for our benefit so that we might know how to be pleasing to Jesus until He does return. That's the theme of Scripture, I fully believe. It's certainly not a book of taxonomy. It's not a book to tell us about everything that we might learn uh, about the stars above and the heavens or every single uh, animal and animal kind here on earth. That said, as we've already alluded to, wherever God's Word alludes to any matter, including scientific matters, its statements must be true and reliable. If the Bible was really given by inspiration of God, everything that God had inspired, His inspired penman write must be accurate, including all the statements that might be deemed scientific. If God is the originator of this Word, if He is the author of it, if it is indeed the Word of God, and by the way, the Bible writers spoke of the, the words that they wrote as being the Word of God even when God wasn't the one speaking, if you will. You know, at times you have a Bible writer who is quoting someone. And there are other times when those passages are quoted later, the text says that God said it. For example, when the Hebrews writer quotes from the book of Psalms, it says the Lord says this, God says this, the Spirit of God said this. But yet it was David or one of the other uh, penmen of the wonderful book of Psalms who wrote it, and it didn't say in the book of Psalms, God is saying this. So this is the Word of God. It is presented as the Word of God. We believe it is inspired, and tonight's lesson is not so much about the amazing evidences for it, but it is about understanding there are a lot of criticisms that are levied against it that simply do not stand. For example, in an article titled, you'll like this title, Scientific Boo-Boos in the Bible. From what I understand, he used to be a faithful New Testament Christian turned skeptic now, Farrell Till, alleged... One thing the Bible definitely is not is inerrant or free from errors. In matters of science, the Bible is riddled with mistakes. He challenged Christians to explain why a divinely inspired inerrant book has so many obvious scientific errors in it. And in the Bible is riddled with scientific errors. And if the Bible is riddled with scientific errors, they should wonder too about the truth that... Um, the truth of that often parodied claim that the Bible is inerrant in all details of history, geography, chronology, etc., as well as in matters of faith and practice. It just ain't so, he said. I believe, is it really already 720? Is that right? Wow. I'm just now getting into the meat of the lesson. Young people, I won't go too long tonight. You know, there are a lot of examples, numerous examples. I just put a few on the screen here behind me of the science, of examples of the amazing scientific accuracy of Scripture. At the very least, if not, the amazing scientific foreknowledge of the Bible writers. You see, the Bible writers, if they were inspired by God, you would expect at least occasionally they would have written things that people in, at the time when they lived simply would not have known that later generations would find out. And I believe when you look at things, even as simple, you might say, as the fact that the law of biogenesis is alluded to about three or four different times in Genesis chapter 1, that that reveals the amazing scientific accuracy of Scripture. 
And that is not by any means the most powerful example that's listed on the screen behind me. You know, for thousands of years, people thought that you could get life from non-life. That, and, and the theory of evolution still teaches today that you can, over billions of years, allegedly, get various kinds of life from previous different kinds of life. Though we've never seen that happen. It is one of the greatest uh, proofs to use against the theory of evolution. But what we read in Genesis chapter 1 is a very accurate statement repeatedly that things produce after their own kind. Even the fruit that was produced on the fruit trees in the garden had seeds inside of them, Genesis chapter 1, that produce after their own kind, verse 11 and verse 12. Well, we know that there are apple seeds in apples that when planted will produce apple trees. Well, that's the accuracy of Genesis chapter 1. I'm not going to go into all of these examples. You can look at some of these. For example, in Genesis chapter 17, how God made a covenant with Abraham and they were to circumcise the male children on day 8. Well, there have been some interesting things that have been discovered in the last 100 to 150 years about why day 8 was so very important. You might be interested in reading some uh, books such as, and I've mentioned this before, perhaps even here, I don't know, S.I. McMillan and David Stern's book, None of These Diseases. They deal with probably most of the things that you see on the screen behind me. This book has been around for a number of years uh, many people, I think even in the, the, the Lord's Church, they have read this. They have it in their library. I would recommend it's really an easy read, and it is a very fascinating read if you have not looked at some of this. Kyle, who uh, uh, wrote Behold the Word of God for us at Apologetics Press, he has an entire chapter in it that deals with some, if not uh, most, of the things on the screen behind me and other things that show the amazing scientific accuracy of Scripture and not a book that has a lot of errors, whether in regards to astronomy or biology or chemistry or some other field of science or simply uh, something like history or mathematics. Again, the book is not. The Bible is not a book of science per se, but whenever God addresses anything, God is the creator of the universe. Jesus is our creator, John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. And so He made nature. And when we study nature, there's going to be nothing, there should be nothing that contradicts what God has revealed to us in His Word whenever He addresses something about the natural realm. So let me give you a couple examples, however, of people who claim, wait a minute, the Bible has scientific errors and here is supposedly specific proof of it. And I hope that uh, showing you two or three of these examples perhaps will show you, will give you uh, somewhat, maybe some more confidence, not that you maybe have any lacking at this time, to show you how, uh, how ridiculous, number one, some of the claims are that people have made against Scripture, and number two, how easily they can be answered, even though on the surface they may sound right the first time you read through it. When you put a little bit of muscle in with God's Word, you put a little brain power in with it, you mix a little common sense in with it, you can see that these men have basically made claims that they simply cannot back up. A major area in which the Bible fails miserably, wrote Dennis McKenzie in his book, The Encyclopedia of Biblical Errancy, concerns a large number of statements that, the, uh, that are patently erroneous from a scientific perspective. On numerous occasions, the Bible makes statements that have little or nothing to do with scientific Accuracy. Well, certainly the Bible has a lot of statements in it that have nothing to do with science. 
Furthermore, the Bible certainly and the Bible writers oftentimes talked about things in a general way or using various figures of speech just like we use today that they did not intend on being scientifically accurate, if you will. Now, Eric, what do you mean by that? Well, what I mean is when the Apostle Paul talked about how someone had fallen asleep, are we to interpret when he means they have passed away? Are we to believe that the Apostle Paul didn't know that they had passed away and they had only fallen. No, that was a way that they spoke. And just as today we would say things instead of he died, we might say, and not that, that would be any, there would be anything wrong with that or that Scripture doesn't use that terminology at times, but at times we use figures of speech that are not necessarily scientifically accurate, but we're not trying to be. When, a, when someone says that, uh, when a woman who is pregnant says, my water has broken. Well, what does that mean? Do you have water that breaks? Or is it, what is it, amniotic fluid? And is it the amniotic fluid that breaks? Or is it the sack that the amniotic fluid that burst? You know, when a weatherman says, the sun will rise tomorrow at 5.45 in the morning. Does that weatherman not know that technically speaking the sun does not rise? Well, of course he understands that it is the earth's rotation and we see a new sun, not because the sun is, is uh, rotating, revolving around the earth but that, or orbiting the earth, but that the earth is orbiting the sun and is rotating one full turn every 24 hours. But he doesn't go into all that detailed scientific jargon or explanation when he says something that we all understand. So the Bible writers did that as well. That said, and, and that understood, the Bible writers do not have the kinds of mistakes that have been alleged by those who simply and apparently uh, despise Scripture. Few topics activate biblical critics more than that of biblically-based scientific contradictions and inaccuracies. That is readily understandable in view of the fact that the book is a veritable miasma of poor science, bad math, and inaccurate geography. All with a heavy overlay of mythology and folklore, Scripture... He doesn't leave much out, does he? Scripture is a veritable cornucopia of scientific inaccuracies, falsehoods, and blunders. Now notice this. In just the last few minutes that we have here together, let me give you at least one, if not two, examples, maybe three, of, uh, of alleged scientific errors in Scripture. And the ones that I'm choosing here, the, the first few of his list of 21 they're from his list, and they're from the very beginning of his list. And I'm putting these out there so you can see these are some of the best that he has produced here in his book. It's a fairly large book called The Encyclopedia of Biblical Errancy. I don't recommend it by any means whatsoever. He's got another book that's even bigger than this that allegedly shows how the Bible is unworthy of our belief. But he... Uh, after listing four, he said, so that is biblical science. Can you conceive a more discordant deluge of deceptive delusion? Saddest of all, it is, uh, is that most of Christianity's most prominent spokesmen are fully cognizant of these biblical inanities, but have spared no effort to avoid them or minimize their importance. Well, the fact is, we have nothing to be afraid of or scared of, even if you don't immediately know the answer to some question that someone asks you as Christians who know that we have as our foundation the truth of Jesus Christ, 
the truth of God and His Word, we have nothing to fear. Though there may be all sorts of theories that come up from this day or that day or all sorts of alleged proofs for this or that that allegedly contradict Scripture, the fact of the matter is truth is truth and has nothing to fear. But it is true that sometimes we may minimize the importance of all of the allegations that are out there. You can live an entire lifetime and do nothing but respond to allegations people make against Christianity. In fact, a lot of the things that we do at Apologetics Press is striving to give reasonable answers for why we believe what we believe and what is wrong with many of the allegations that are made against the Bible writers. So, consider a couple of, uh, a couple of these scientific errors. Here's number one. This is it. I mean, this is supposedly powerful proof that your Bible is not from God because it contains errors such as this. Bats are not birds. Did you catch that? Bats are not birds. Did you know that? The Scripture says, These you shall regard as an abomination among the birds, and they shall not be eaten. They are an abomination. And then you have several of these birds listed. I don't know if you can see the bottom line there, but at the very end of Leviticus chapter 11, verse 19, in this list of birds... Bats are listed. And so the skeptic sees this, and the skeptic said, this, this is ridiculous. Bats are not birds. In fact, here are a couple of criticisms, or three. The Bible's classification of bats as birds allegedly represents one of the scientific difficulties in the Bible. One Muslim said an obvious contradiction between the Bible and science is where bats are categorized as birds. Dennis McKenzie wrote, The bat is, of course, a mammal, not a bird. And this passage purportedly, uh, he says, is a... Superb verse to use to take enlightenment to the biblically benighted. In other words, he says this is a great example to use to show people that you shouldn't believe the Bible. Here's an example. Now, on the surface, he may seem to have a point until you really begin to think about a few things, beginning with the fact that God did not classify animals thousands of years ago according to our modern classification system. And what I have seen and what you have probably seen uh, repeatedly is that a lot of people, uh, they take 21st century, oftentimes, English-American biases and they try to put them into Scripture and they have a misunderstanding of something that a biblical writer said. And yet they seem to forget this was written at a different time, at a different place, by different people, in a different language. And so it takes a little more thought than simply looking at something so superficially and say, here is an obvious, one of the best examples of a biblical error that you can find. Well, wait a second. God didn't classify animals the way that we classify them today. And we can appreciate some of the work of Carolus Linnaeus back in the 1700s. My understanding is that he was a creationist. And so he wasn't trying to prove evolution or anything like that. But simply because he categorized animals in a certain way and simply because that has been built upon in many ways since that time and we break animals oftentimes down into mammals and reptiles and uh, amphibians and birds. There's probably something I have forgotten there, but that doesn't mean that God broke them down that way. In fact, when you look at Scripture and you look at the very first chapter of the Bible, you see that God created He created animals on days 5 and 6 of creation. He created flying things on day 5, animals that swim in the seas on day 5, and He created land animals on day 6. 
You don't read anything there about how he created mammals on one day and reptiles on one day and uh, amphibians on one day. And No, that's not, that's not what you read. I mean, think about it. Some of the aquatic creatures, some of them would have been reptiles. Some of them would have been fish, as we define them. And some of them would have been mammals, such as whales. And some of the land animals, some of them would have been something besides mammals. Well, God, He categorized animals, if you will, in Genesis chapter 1 and Leviticus chapter 11, as well as Deuteronomy chapter 14, based more upon um, their habitat or their locomotion, if you will, than some of the ways that animals are categorized today. And so to say that the Bible writers made a mistake, that Moses made a mistake, that the Bible is scientifically inaccurate because, for example, bats are listed at the end of a list of birds, uh, simply is making a statement that cannot be logically defended. That would be equivalent to me going into, let's see, Rob, are you in here tonight? I could go into Rob's house and... And, I, you know, Rob and I are different. Rob is a great guy. But Rob and I, we have our differences. I would imagine I could walk into Rob's closet and I could see where he would have his clothes arranged differently than the way I arrange clothes. And, of course, the way he arranges them would be wrong. And my way would be right. And I could... Could I legitimately criticize the way that he arranges his pants and his shirts? Maybe, you know, Rob, is, maybe he likes it where he puts his pants, you know, hanging here and then he puts the shirt over the pants and he always wears these kinds of things together and maybe he's more organized. You know, um, before Kyle moved to Florence a few years ago, still working with uh, AP full-time, we're thankful for that. Uh, that really hurt me, by the way, when he moved to Florence. I, he worked next to me for about seven or eight years and I let him know it. I might have even cried, but I got over it anyway. Let me move on from there. When, when, when Kyle's library was right next to mine... I made fun of him occasionally because he arranged his books this way. Very elementary, if you will. One, two, three, four, five, six. When he got a new book, it was number 72. And then if he got another new book, it was 73. It didn't matter if that book was on uh, the existence of God and the next book was on immersion and the next book was a Greek textbook. It was one, two, three, four, five. Well, I arrange my books topically. I arrange it the right way, right? Well, no, it's not the right way. It's just the way I do it. You see, it would be, I'm unjustified to say my way is right and your way is wrong. And so for someone to say the Bible writers made a mistake because they classified bats as birds, simply they're misunderstanding the fact that God did not, or not acknowledging the fact that God could categorize His animals, His creation, however He wanted to categorize them. Why is the term bird used, however? Why would God say bird and then put bat? Well, interestingly, the Hebrew word for bird here translated in most translations, bird is of, which is derived from a word meaning uh, to fly or fly about or fly away. And it is referring to really flying creatures. But because I suppose, I'm guessing 99.9% of flying creatures are birds, the word birds is used. By the way, later in this chapter, in Leviticus chapter 11, that same Hebrew word is used to refer to creeping, crawling things or insects. And so it's not talking about bird insects. It's talking about flying insects. So really, technically, the Hebrew word really just means flying creature. But the word bird is used. And I can understand why the word bird is used. It's just sad that skeptics misunderstand this or do not acknowledge this and will continue to claim that the Bible writers made mistakes. Why are no other mammals listed with the birds? Well, that seems to be pretty obvious because 
I don't know of any other mammals besides bats that fly. We may have sugar gliders. We may have squirrels that can jump from one tree and maybe glide for a few feet, but we really don't have any other flying mammals, at least not that I am aware of. And so there are various, I think, logical responses to criticism such as this, including the fact that bats are listed at the end of the list of birds and just before the mentioning of flying insects, which certainly would seem that the Bible writer Moses here was giving us some indication that certainly he, the Holy Spirit, knew that, okay, this was an animal, is an animal that looks different than birds, but it is a flying animal, and they didn't have the classification system that we have today. Now, let me give you one other example, and then we'll close. And again, I apologize for only getting to two of these, but I saved the most disgusting one for last. Anyone here have any pet rabbits? The Edwards have a pet rabbit and a few others. I think I may have mentioned last night that Micah, my son who loves animals, he caught a rabbit the other day, and it tasted really good when we put it on the grill. Actually, we didn't, but I don't know that I've ever had rabbit. Maybe we need to try that sometime. Rabbits do not chew the cud. You know, in Leviticus chapter 11, when you look in Leviticus 11, rabbits are mentioned as being cud chewers. I almost said chud cooers, but I didn't. But I thought that for a second. Um... Cud chewers. Are rabbits cud chewers? Here's, a, again, a skeptic who basically is very critical of the Bible writers mentioning rabbits as cud chewers. He also mentions the coney. I'm not going to address the coney because there is some um, discussion, uh, disagreement on what the animal is listed right before rabbits in Leviticus chapter 11 and verse 5. The New King James says rock hyrax. Some versions say the rock badger. I don't really know for sure what animal it is or the coney. But I'm going to address this idea. And again, these are two of the top 21 that this one skeptic list as just blatant scientific errors in Scripture. We've already dealt with one. And so rabbits, they're not cud chewers. And yet the Bible mentions them as cud chewers. How can the Bible be correct? How can, it, uh, how can the Bible writers actually be inspired by God? Well, let me just mention that oftentimes we do describe things as they appear and not as they actually are. I've mentioned a couple of, uh, really, I've mentioned, I suppose, all of these examples. It could very well be that the way that rabbits, anyone, anyone like to demonstrate how rabbits move their nose or eat and they move their mouths? I bet I have a teenager over here who would like to demonstrate that for us. Jordan, would you like to demonstrate for us how, how rabbits maybe might appear to be chewing the cud because of the way they move their mouths? That could possibly be. But I really don't think that is the answer. It may be that since rabbits move their jaws and wiggle their noses in a way that looks like they are ruminating, that the Bible categorizes them as such. However, it could be something very different. Though the rabbit or hare does not have a three or four chambered stomach from which it directly regurgitates previously swallowed food for a second chewing, it does practice what modern scientists call refection. Now, I hate to go through this before we have refreshments. But let me just do this very quickly. The skeptics are making me do this, okay? They say that the rabbits don't chew the cud. The Bible writer made an error. How do you respond to it? Well, I imagine some of you know the answer to this already. As George Kansdell in his classic work, All of the Animals of the uh, Bible Lands, mention that they may not be uh, the classic cud chewers as we think of, 
He says at certain times of the day when the hair is resting in its form, as he calls it, it passes droppings of different texture and appearances. Let me read through this very quickly. Which it at once eats again, swallowing them after little or no chewing. It thus seems to be eating without taking any green stuff into its mouth. Like the ruminants, hares feed on bulky vegetation, vegetable matter, of which only a part can be digested, and the yield is largely the result of bacterial actions inside the gut. The process of breaking down into the assimilable substances is started on the first passage through and taken a stage further on the second. And so, although rabbits do not regurgitate their food, their food... Scientists say a certain percentage of it, at least. Some say as much as 50% of it is chewed again. Not, I don't know, it just doesn't really make me want to have a rabbit. Maybe we could find a rabbit that doesn't ruminate or whatever, refect, I guess, as they call it. But some might say, well, Eric, refection is not rumination. That's Robert, Roberts. See, I tell you, it's been a long day. I haven't had supper again tonight, so... I knew I was going to say Robert or something soon. So they do not chew the cud. Now think about this. Again, how do we define cud chewing today? Well, an animal like a, uh, a cow chews the grass, it swallows it, it then later regurgitates it, it chews it again and swallows it again. That's not even a pretty picture to think about, but it's not quite as disgusting as what the rabbit does. But that's how we define the word. But you have to consider how would the Bible writers have defined this. Critics assume that Moses used the phrase, chew the cud, exactly how we use the phrase today. However, it is completely unjust to force the present-day definition of cud chewing on a 3,500-year-old document. So what could Moses have meant? Well, all you have to do, I believe, is go to Leviticus chapter 11 and Deuteronomy chapter 14, which are, from what I understand, the only places in Scripture where cud chewing is mentioned. And if you want to know what Moses meant by that, go to those two passages. And what animals does he mention? Well, he mentions a variety of them, including the hare or the rabbit in both of them. So if you allow Moses to define his own terms then the word cud or the phrase cud chewers or chewing the cud meant something a little bit broader than it means today. And so these are examples of how oftentimes, and these are just a couple of examples, of where critics of Scripture, they will uh, levy a, a, a criticism against the Bible writers and they will base much of their criticism upon what is seen today and how they define things today, rather than having the interest, and I believe the honesty, to look at how the Bible writers used those words thousands of years ago and the context in which they were used. We have, I believe, an obligation to help people to defend the truth as best we can. It may be that we're not... uh, qualified or able to talk about every single solitary question under the sun, and I've seen thousands of quibbles that people have brought up against accusations against various Bible writers. But I do believe that as Christians, it is, number one, helpful to look at some of these things and to see how easily some of their most frequently used accusations can be answered, I believe, biblically and reasonably. And number two, it may very well be that we can learn some things as we hope to defend our faith, as we hope to give people reasonable answers in our uh, defense of truth as we strive to do it in a spirit of meekness and fear. Uh, Go ahead and let's bow and I will lead us in a prayer.
and I'll go ahead and give thanks for whatever snacks we may have in the back and then turn it over to whoever else needs to speak, if anyone does. Let's bow. Holy Father, it is a pleasure to be your children. It's a pleasure to be followers of Jesus Christ, and we are very thankful for your word. We're thankful for um, your inspired writers. We're thankful for the truths that we have. We pray that we will not only study and see somewhat academically how we can know your word is inspired, but that you will allow us to meditate on your word, to talk to you and to talk to ourselves as we meditate on the truths in your word and as we seek to apply your word to our lives. Thank you for those gathered here this evening. We especially thank you for the precious young people who are growing up knowing you and we pray that uh, we as older Christians will set the right kind of example for them. Thank you for this congregation, for the leaders of this congregation, for those who teach here and preach here. Please bless all of their efforts and bless us as Christians as we strive to teach others the marvelous truths found within your word, beginning with the fact that Jesus Christ is your Son and our Savior. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.